Welcome to the AI Decision Guy podcast, the show where we explore the intriguing balance between artificial intelligence and human decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Carlos Kemeny, and in each episode, we dive deep into the world of AI and its impact on various industries. Today, my guest is Chad Greenleaf. Chad is currently serving as the Senior Vice President of Client Services at AppsFlyer. Previously, he served as the Vice President of both Customer Success, as well as Consulting Partner Services and Support at Domo. And then before that, he was the Senior Manager of Analytics and Media Optimization at Adobe. Chad is a cross-functional leader with a track record of building and leading customer success and partner teams charged with revenue growth, customer loyalty, and product adoption. Right, Chad, it's great to be with you. Thanks for joining the show. Hello, good to see you again. And it, man, it's been a while, I guess. We, we um, didn't talk about this before, but it's been a while since we've, we've chatted. <laughs> since the Domo days, it's been a while. I, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, now you're at AppsFlyer yep. um, and leading uh, a great deal of things there. I'd love to kind of just dig in about what specifically is going on there. Um, how is customer success? What are you seeing in the industry? Maybe we can start uh, just having that kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's no lack of things going on for sure. AppsFlyer um, is, I think, one of those uh, maybe companies that is uh, touching more people's lives than people realize, right? Um, they are a mobile, I, I think, analytics and attribution and, and uh, marketing decision-making company, right, at the end of the day. Uh, they're a great organization to work for. Uh, really smart people. They're a true global organization. They're, you know, in most major um, geographies in, in, in the world. In fact, when they started sort of their company, most company, they, they're, um, uh, they were formed or founded in Israel and most companies moved to the U.S. and then go from there. They started and they moved east and sort of went to India, China. And then, you know, they kind of landed in the U.S. almost late, right, or later in their journey um, than other places. So it's been fascinating. They're, they're a great group. And uh, as I mentioned, they're focused on the mobile um, UA and mobile analytics and, and sort of mobile measurement space. And there's so much happening in that industry that we, we could use the whole podcast to break that down. But basically, um, privacy with, with iOS 14 and a lot of the privacy changes we've seen in the mobile industry recently have hit, you know, that industry like a, like an earthquake. Um, and I really love apps flyer because rather than I think trying to kind of fight against privacy or sort of fight to keep access to user level data, they've really leaned into the concept of, um, privacy being a cornerstone of the internet, a cornerstone of sort of, um, safe and free transit for all of us in terms of, of, of having data, having our own data sharing data. And so they're developing solutions that are, you know, very privacy centric, like data clean rooms and other things. And it's been fun. It's just, again, it's an exciting, very um, dynamic space to be in right now. And it's, it's uh, a lot of fun to do. Well, that's good. Over your career, you've built and sustained enterprise uh, world-class uh, teams and consulting customer success. Tell me a little bit about the decision making and how that's evolving. You know, what are these organizations required 
to do and how are decisions changing? What are the types of decisions that you feel like um, over time uh, have kind of nailed down these spaces? I think customer success is a more relatively new field, not that it's any uh, newer than some of these other things like product uh, management, but I would say customer success is now a very popularized institution uh, for good reason, uh, to take care of customers, to make sure that there's a renewal, there's no risk, uh, satisfaction. And we have all these metrics now that are tracking where people are at, health monitors. Uh, but you know, tell, let's talk a little bit about the future of decision-making in the customer success space. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think you're right in that it's relatively speaking, if you look at the rest of sort of the C-suite or the rest of sort of who's out there, right, from a customer perspective or from, a, I guess, a company perspective overall, that customer success space um, is, is newer, newer in terms of um, in the SaaS or technology model. It was one thing before it was maybe customer service. Now it's customer success. It's evolved a lot. And I think the newness of that, there's still a lot of unresolved uh, questions out there within an organization in terms of how it works and how to best drive the value. Um, but you're right, there are more norms being established now. I think more expectations and norms that are established now about how it should operate, what it should do, more or less what it should look like. Um, I think you're seeing a lot more, I think, um, alignment um, and parity around that. In terms of decisions, I think some of the key decisions still lie on, well, what, you know, how do we measure the success of our customers ultimately? Like, what does that look like? Is that ultimately a financial measurement in terms of NRR or GRR or ARR? Is it some kind of other satisfaction measurement? Um, those are still, I think, questions and decisions that are outstanding. And then those are important because the answer to those questions really then determines what your strategy is as a customer success or as a consulting or as a support organization. How do you go about doing that? And you may not notice it as much maybe, you know, in the sort of the mundane everyday to day tasks, but really the direction that you take it as organization, what you do, what you promote, um, the way you think about how you interact with your customers and your journey there are greatly impacted by by those decisions. So a lot of that, for, frankly, is still being formed. Uh, I've seen this across organizations and seeing it working with, you know, other customer success leaders as well. How does the customer success and the relationship with the customer from a demand side? So customers are now much more understanding of what good customer success looks like. They've had this, like you said, throughout a number of the SaaS offerings that they've they have. So they have a central quarterback that's helping them and delivering sometimes some unique solutions when other parts of the company maybe aren't going as fast. Uh, that's, I think, one of these wonderful parts of customer success that have risen up is there's somebody that's truly there. There's a point person that can kind of bring other parts of the company in. What are How, how has the expectation of the customer now changed as this field is evolving even more? And it's more critical in delivering excellent customer service. Yeah, I think it is changing. Uh, I think it's changing for the better, I would say. I think this is a healthy change in that customers are more cognizant of what they should be expecting, what they should ask for, right? What's uh, what the expectation is. 
Um, I think, again, those norms that are being established, maybe they have, you know, experiences with certain vendors. And so that expectation carries over to other vendors. And then again, I think that there's opportunity there because you get certainly, I think, norms established, right? In terms of expectations, um, you have opportunities as, you know, a unique vendor of your own to then sort of put your flair on that. But I think one of the biggest boons as well, from my perspective on on the technology and the vendor side is, you know, you, you don't find that it's so strange to be asking customers to have responsibilities as part of this journey as well, right? Hey, this is a program, you're running a program, here's our responsibilities, here's what we're asking you to do, here's how we're gonna partner together. And for customer, you can tell the customers that have worked with other, you know, technology vendors, maybe in the SaaS space, they totally get that. For those that don't, it's the, maybe their first experience, that can be a little bit jarring or a little bit foreign to them. Uh, we're used to customer service where we call you and you do everything. And so I think I think um, it's healthy in a lot of ways, right? And and those norms as they continue to sort of talk about storming and then forming and norming, I think as, as those norms are more and more established, I think it will bring a lot more continuity throughout the industry. And I think that's, again, ultimately a good thing. Well, and I think that, you know, your your official title at AppsFlyer is Client Services. And I think that from my understanding, especially with your background, um, you've delivered the professional services through the beginning of your career all the way to leading public companies, professional service. And then, you know, you've led the customer success side of things. I would imagine that you're kind of bridging the gap now in all of these things. But there's an optimization equation, I would imagine, that yeah. there's there's a lot of levers that we're pulling and we're trying to figure out and having been on one of your teams, Chad, I, I think that, you know, I, I learned the importance of uh, leadership. Um, and quite frankly, I thought you were a phenomenal leader in being able to bring a vision to um, the culture of professional services and what we were meant to do. Uh, you empowered teams, uh, including myself, to have autonomy to deliver excellent service and to do whatever it took. And so I think in many ways, there is a cultural shift that has happened or needs to happen where it hasn't uh, of optimization instead of these silos. And I think that that principle has always been around, but leadership still is either the enabler or the bottleneck. And it comes down still to individual leadership to do that. Would you agree with that? I, for sure. I think, uh, you know, and I see that changing as well. Fortunately, I think for the better where leaders are asked to be more responsible, right? Um, because if I stop to think about it, you know this, I always felt that ultimately, you know, folks on the ground doing the work, hey, you're closer to the changes that we need to make, the improvement. You tell me what's working on the ground. Let's let's sort of systematize that more so that everybody can take advantage of it, right? That's That's the approach we need to take. And then I think across groups, across support, across, you know, the rest of customer success, across consulting, how can we uh, get those groups to work more effectively together. That's the leader's job to figure that out, right? That's the leader's job to bring that kind of value. So I always felt like ultimately those, all those different groups in customer success and consulting and whatever, they're my customers. And my job is to help you to be successful as possible so that you can go out and help our customers be successful. And so if I'm not doing my job, how can I expect or ask you to do your job effectively? Um, and, and I don't think all leaders, unfortunately, have that same mindset. 
I'd agree. I mean, I think one of the intriguing parts of AI and its ability to supplement teams is the power of augmented work, um, whether that's delivering services and let's point out a few use cases, administrative time. While it's not an overall burden, it does take away time from someone who's delivering services. And certainly being able to capture those things, ChatGPT is a great solution for helping you to summarize or solutions that are now recording and then summarizing things. That takes away a tremendous amount of administrative time. Um, so that project management function now has been streamlined a bit. From a standpoint of, let's say, code assist um, or task assist with different solutions. Now this provides some help in automating some of the tasks that maybe a junior is doing. But it opens up potential gaps in developing principal, senior leadership type of roles in the professional services world. What happens when that first layer, second layer of the junior role starts to go away? Because quite frankly, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's easier um, than training someone new. And now we start opening up these gaps. How do you deliberately as a leader build up a professional services team when there's constant pressure? to utilize some of these now evolving tools that are going to be cheaper and faster and easier to implement than training a junior. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, and again, with, with most everything that we see that's somewhat disruptive or is disruptive, such as, as AI is going to be disruptive in ways that I don't think most of us can still comprehend. We're still working on that. And I think that's what scares, you know, a lot of us as well. That's why you see so much fear around it. Um, I think in the short term, this problem is relatively, should be relatively simple to solve in that, hey, if you're leveraging, you know, an AI type of solution, either from a vendor or you're de deploying something yourself to take care of some of those administrative tasks, great, toggle those off for somebody that's newer to the organization, let them go three, four, six months where they are not relying on you know, uh, again, some kind of an AI assistant to be able to help them make their way through those things. Now, will they potentially go off the internet and sort of look for maybe some cheats on, oh, I can, I can find a, a SQL code cheat here or there. Sure. Like there's, there's kind of no stopping that, but I think that's one way in the short term to at least still give them the ability to kind of work through some of what, you know, maybe the more senior folks have had to work through themselves. I think where it gets more tricky is as those systems become more and more entrenched and work their way up sort of the food chain or the value chain more in terms of the value that they're adding. I think then that solution of simply toggling on or toggling off, you know, an AI assistant becomes harder because it, be it becomes more integrated into people's workflows day to day. Right. And that, that's going to happen as time goes on. So I've got a great short term answer. I don't know that I have a great long-term answer for what that looks like. And I think that is one of the challenges um, that, you know, if you fast forward 40 years, right, into this AI world, well, there are going to be a lot of things I would suspect 40 years from now that people are not going to know how to do versus, you know, folks from maybe our generation that grew up, like, think about even driving a car, think about some of those basic things. So do they need to know those things? Or do they not need to know them? I think that's the real question that we we ask ourselves. And so I, I think the question is as much what needs to be learned, what needs to be sort of known manually versus over time, what are we going to be able to shed and jettison? And those things are not skills that need to be known. And I, I don't know the answer to that.
It's a fascinating point. And I think the reason why it's so important for leaders to figure this out now is because of the speed. There's unprecedented speed. And as the labor market shifts, I think one of the big concerns that we have is that, um, you know, client services, let's be honest, there's tremendous nuance. Mm -hmm. the, the autonomy that's given to someone and the judgment of their ability to handle unique situations is what really provides very high value relationships and ultimately bigger contract values and trust, right? I mean, ultimately, this is all built off of trust and value. And there is a lot of nuance there. Um, yes. And the challenge is then normalizing or standardizing this delivery would I think that this is the challenge that we face at the labor market. Humans are very uncertain uh, beings. We're very uncertain. We have hard days. And yep. thus, the, you know, the discussion changes a little bit. Depending on what you ate that day, <laughs> it could completely throw off your, your afternoon, right? And how you deal with different situations. And qu quite frankly, right, temperamentally, we, we, we look for some normalization there too. But I think that the point here is... AI does reduce quite a bit of uncertainty from state, you know, from person to person or situation to situation, which clearly in client services, you don't always want, you want to have that unique touch and that feel, but from an organizational perspective, when you're trying to adjust a normal offering that can be applied across several big enterprise customers, there's efficiencies and there's value that's gained through doing that as well. And so how do you balance these things as a leader? You know, how do you make decisions of what to standardize? Uh, what decisions do you automate away and what decisions? And just like this conversation that you've proposed, which is, you know, ultimately the way that we develop our people, that is also kind of a decision of somebody needs to make that call as to what are we going to replace it with if we automate something and does it need to be. But right. the same would apply, I think, for the offerings and how we give offerings what are your suggestions for leaders that are asking themselves, how do I deal in this AI world? What are the decisions I need to make? How do I make those decisions of what to automate, what not? Well, I think there's, I, I see, and I see it, you know, with the folks I work with, but I see it more broadly. I think there are two general kind of flavors of, of, uh, or schools of approach with AI, which is one is to be, you know, extremely cautious, the other is to be extraordinarily, um, I think, um, experimentative, I guess, if, if that's a word, or experimental with AI, dive in and see what can be leveraged right away. Um, I know for our organization, you know, we're certainly looking at the, call it the low end, right, of, of sort of the workflow chain that we're looking at and saying, you know, I had a conversation two weeks ago with one of our folks who, who, who deals with a, a high number of customers. I said, hey, Let's just let's just play a game here for 30 minutes and pretend you had an AI assistant. What would you have that AI assistant do and what would you not have that AI assistant do? And we had a really fascinating conversation about this very thing. Like what could you, you know, what would you feel comfortable trusting AI to do? Um, again, provide, you know, knowledge, but like vacuum up our knowledge base, all, all of our help center information, provide some initial thoughts about a topic. Maybe that's moderated when you first start out. Maybe it gets better as time goes on. And then to your point, right, when it comes to the more sort of human touch or maybe more nuanced touch, then you have more human touch involved there. Or maybe there's a, just a plain relationship element 
that an AI, you know, um, integration or plugin is not going to provide in the short term. So let's let's make sure you you have now more ability to be able to do that. But to your point, the uh, the assumption is that that person has the ground level knowledge to be able to sort of correct mis misconceptions, you know, misinteractions with AI and be able to say, no, here's really the answer or no, here's really how you should think about this. Um, so it, it, it provides at the same time opportunities for expansion. Um, and, and, you know, it also requires, I think, in the short term, some supervision. Uh, so as a leader, I think that's, that's the value chain that we're marching up right now. Um, and, and I think most people are fairly comfortable. We all are because then we are able to focus on higher value tasks, et cetera, et cetera, what have you. I think again, where it gets a bit more, uh, uncertain and maybe frightening is, okay, well, what if AI improves at a speed and efficiency that it's moving up that value chain faster as well? Where do you draw a line and what do you do? Um, and I don't necessarily have that all mapped out and blueprinted. But I think we've got to be, you know, very careful and very selective about where we're choosing human touch and not. And I'll tell you one other thing that I think is going to be important as the years go on in this conversation. That is, what is the audience's expectation? So if you think about the audience today, maybe interacting with AI might be a bit uncomfortable, just like it is for us deploying it, right? But think fast forward ten years ahead. Maybe maybe certain customers that we're working with, their expectation is that they want to interact with AI and not with a human. Well, companies are probably going to be doing what they can to make sure that that, you know, that is then the mode or the medium that they're working with those customers, right? So I think uh, our all, overall tolerance, all of us for AI and AI interaction as it goes up, I think then then that gives, you know, companies the, uh, the opportunity, I think, to deploy AI maybe more, a bit more aggressively as time goes on as well. So I think there's that, that dance or that balance, if you will, between what's expected from the audience and what's, what's provided by the provider. How do you build a system that um, deliberately shows you the answer to those things quickly? I think that the ENPS is a good example where we put something out and over time, we hope to have enough sample size that we can make some deliberate decisions around, or the NPS score, sorry, um, around where customers sit. And this is going to be a good gauge for renewals and so on and so forth. That's an interesting process in terms of speed, time for each customer, because they typically, what well, we do that every six months with the customer to not overburden them. But at the same time, we kind of use these big samples to gauge a specific point in time where we sit. And there's been a lot of criticism on that metric. Some of it founded, some of it not. But I think that when we talk about these quick iterations of what the audience expectations are, you look at the duration of time that passed between a GPT-3 and a GPT-4 to the world, and then to see the exponential shifts that happen in between now versions of the AI, I think it will blow our minds, particularly because there's so much learning that happens with 100 billion people or more in any type of system. And that, I think, is the incredible innovation of OpenAI. Above all else, the speed to which they got so many customers to give feedback at this incredible rate. Um, how do you build systems then to, and set them up at companies 
to capture this type of information that quickly and then to shift the approach. How do you then move that quickly and be in between these versions to do that? And I think this is a big concern for a lot of leaders right now is what should I even innovate today for my customers knowing that potentially it could be disrupted? I know a lot of founders, for example, that are asking that question. Well, if I develop today, what happens in the next iteration? So how do you do that? How do you, how do you, how do you innovate with speed and how do you put your marbles in the right place uh, or you bet those marbles or roll those marbles in the right place so that uh, it's not wasted innovative effort? Yeah, I think there are a couple of principles that come to mind and I, I keep, I constantly, when, whenever I, I, we talk about AI and I hear about AI, which is a lot these days, I, I, I think back to maybe three or four years ago, I read, uh, portions of a book, and I'll, I'll have to identify it, but it talked about AI, right? And the AI sort of revolution. And it talked about the exponential curve of AI growth, right? Which is what you're describing and how early on people are going to be disappointed with how little AI is sort of developing, right? And how slow it is to sort of take off. And uh, there's nothing there. It's vaporware. It's not going anywhere. But then once the curve starts to ch you know turn and change, all of a sudden we're all back on our heels with how fast AI is, is innovating, evolving, is changing, um, how it's changing all of our lives so rapidly. And that has always stuck with me thinking about AI. And I think to answer your question succinctly, I think, first of all, I as a leader kind of have to accept whatever I'm building, it has a high likelihood of being disrupted. It will be disrupted at some point. There's no getting around that. I think it's just a matter of, can I build something that's somewhat valuable and sustainable, at least for a, a period of time, a window of time where it was worth the effort to evolve and innovate, right? And then that will, you know, it will have its time, it will be over and then something else will come along. So I think accepting that from the beginning is very, very important, at least for me mentally. Otherwise, I'm not going to set out on the journey at all. And then I think the other thing, which traditionally I tend to be a more cautious mover, but I found with situations like this with AI and others, like what we're trying to do right now is really a lot of micro experiments rapidly, right? We're trying to place a lot of different bets rather than saying, hey, let's try one gargantuan thing or try one or two big things. Let's try 10 small things. Let's see what bears fruit, what doesn't, what could we build on, et cetera, et cetera. And that ultimately may be the way that we're sort of keeping ourselves from being, you know, like over innovated or out innovated is we're constantly having a mindset of like building on top of that and innovating on top of that over time. So I think you have to move from sort of a macro mindset to more of a, a bit more of a micro mindset. Again, will that work or not? Well, I'll find out. I'll tell you in five years whether that was a good idea or not. But I, I think that that, though, that shift in mentality for me has been helpful so far. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you've just said in terms of the innovation cycle, because ultimately the uncertainty around investment is a decision of do we spend a hundred billion, you know, hundred billion dollars or, uh, or, you know, how many billions of dollars now has OpenAI invested? I think that they raised a billion and now with Microsoft's investment, right? And so the question is, how far are they ahead? You're not going to compete against OpenAI. Um, right. That's not uh, really the mission of a lot of companies. And it's not in their best interest to do that. And so at that point, I, your point is, I think, very wise, 
which is innovate where it makes sense to innovate for your mission of your company in ways that are going to integrate AI, that's a reasonable test. It's a reasonable experiment, something that can be tested quickly instead of investing these major amounts of dollars to go nowhere, right? And that maybe are disrupted within three months anyway. That's right. It's interesting too. I think OpenAI is taking a lot of heat right now. They, You know this, they just went in front of Congress just a few weeks ago and basically begged for, you know, regulation. Uh, and a lot of folks are like, well, sure, now that they've got such a massive lead on everybody else, now they want the industry to be regulated, right? Um, so is that sincere or not? I, I'm not necessarily the best person to speak on that. But if you talk about, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the dinosaur effect, if you will, I mean, Bill Gates is out there saying that, hey, you know, Google, Amazon, these companies, you know, as soon as somebody strikes the gold of, of an AI personal assistant, think fast forward ahead, no one's going to surf the internet anymore. Like you, these companies are not, you know, they're either their business model will significantly have to change or they're going to be obsolete. So you talk about like, should, should Amazon, should Google stop innovating? Should they, you know, no, they're not going to do that. They're going to continue to work and try and build their business and move their businesses forward. But Hey, we're all susceptible to that at the end of the day. It's just a matter of when and how significantly and what that looks like. And so come to terms with it and move on and try your best in the face of that. I think it makes a lot of sense because I think what the metaverse, this is my theory, we'll call it a conspiracy theory, but the idea is the metaverse is more around centralized data than it is about any type of experience. Mm -hmm. But if you can centralize data on, you know, any touch point, right, with somebody's blood pressure, somebody's heartbeat, and pair that into a conversation now with a customer success person, because it's all centralized at this point. Can you use individual conversations to gauge renewal? Like clearly, this will happen, right? The, you know, as we centralize data, you come up with different experiments on what is significant on predicting these things. And we haven't really achieved a perfect way of doing this yet today with regular data, which shows that there are gaps in the system, trust, quality. These still remain as big data. And we worked, you know, at a, you know, we... <laughs> We, were, we saw this front line, right, where companies struggle with data governance all the time. And so they're not ready for even that jump. But in a black box world where now someone uses this data, they're able to show some of these uh, drivers and they can bring this. There's a lot of market force that's going to push towards these types of things. And I think that the danger that we have is actually becoming too dependent on AI for decisions. And the mm -hmm. reason why I feel that's dangerous is because maybe going back to the first part of our conversation, what happens when you become too dependent on something? You yeah. really don't go back to what you did before. It's, it's a very challenging. Now, some can do that. There are people that have great support to kind of push them into, hey, let's develop you as a person. There's a lot of easy things. Use an example, mowing the lawn. If I have a lawnmower that goes by itself, and there's plenty of opportunities now in the market to buy these. Um, or if I need to go mow my lawn, am I constantly saying, oh, Carlos, like this is a good character building experience? No, you know, it's, it's get the lawn done. I need to get the lawn done. There's some other things to do with my time. And I think it goes back to your previous point, which is how do you check, how do you create a check and balance, a check and balance system, not necessarily from the government, the regulatory side. And certainly there is this place for regulation. 
but it's self-regulation that's actually going to be one of the biggest challenges I think of our time with this, which is what is a good check for my organization culturally here? Because we can disrupt a lot of jobs absolutely through automation even today. But should we right now? And how do we do that? And what's the way? And this is true leadership that's going to be required to figure these types of questions out, right? And that's true leadership. This is now going to test leadership will. And I think that the other part of that is how do you educate that next round of leaderships? Today, it's the ability to apprentice, right? That's how we build leadership today. You observe, you grow through that. You are basically an apprentice to leadership and they develop you. But I think that this becomes a very self-regulated, self uh, it's a it's a developmental track that has an objective of greater than the efficiencies of tomorrow. It's more around how do we develop great decision makers. I think this is going to be the biggest valuable trait of the workforce, that valuable part of the workforce that we will see is who really has developed these leadership traits. And Chad, again, I, I think you always, you've always kind of uh, exemplified these types of uh, leadership opportunities. Um, I think you've done a great job doing that throughout your career, but how do you, what's the advice to leaders out there on how do you develop people? How do you develop culture? How do you develop an organization instead of looking to the shiny object, even if it works, how do you, how do you create de deliberate decision-making that's going to optimize for the whole? I, yeah. I, and, it, and I, boy, there's a lot there to unpack. I think you've hit on several things and I think, you know, ultimately I think, leaders have to recognize that as a value, right? Building leadership, for example, um, or I can name other values that we're trying to hold fast to as a company, like privacy, right? Um, doing no harm. Um, there, there are a lot of different values that a lot of different companies have. You have to, I think, in advance, be able to say, hey, here are our values. Here are the lines that we will not cross. Here are the the things that are our table stakes to our organization or to us. And this is where we will not compromise. And I think if you have the foresight and take the time to actually state that and have that conversation as you get into something like AI, then you really have a clear roadmap about what you are going to be doing with it and what you are unwilling to do with it. Um, so if, if developing leadership is really that important, then you'll say, hey, our, our push to be more efficient with AI is subservient ultimately to making sure that we have good leadership at this organization to take it into the future. If that is a value, then, then that allows you to prioritize accordingly, right? And, and then the right things stay at the front. But I, I, my fear for a lot of organizations is that it will all ultimately, especially in times of stress, right? Where the economy's down and things are tough, we're looking for what is that next thing that's going to kind of give us the the ability to get an advantage? I fear that, you know, for companies, they might push those things aside or be willing to sort of set those things on a shelf while they're driving for the next quarter's profits or driving for that next thing that's right around the bend. Um, and that's what I think, you know, if you look at the sort of the privatized nature of how we're developing AI globally, not just here, um, it can be, it can be kind of frightening. And, 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 that's why I say, on the other hand, I think the asks that we're seeing from some of these individuals about regulation for AI, I think that's why those calls are coming, um, is because we want to make sure that it's not squarely driven around, I've got to be the competitor, I've got to be first to market, I've got to be first to profit. 
that's when it's so tempting and so easy to push those values aside. But you're right in that there are bigger issues afoot. There are bigger things to consider than simply abdicating all of those values for the sake of just getting a little bit more efficient and having more span of control. So those are, I think very, it's very well said. And those are things that we've got to make sure that we consciously think about and act on as leaders. Chad, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate what you're doing. Um, appreciate all that you're contributing to this uh, leadership that we need. And I'm, and I'm grateful for the conversation today. So thank you for joining and uh, appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, great to see you again, Carlos. And uh, can't wait to hear some of the other thoughts about this. This is going to be an ongoing conversation, a fun one. Thank you for joining us on the AI Decision Guy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes as we continue to explore the ever-evolving landscape of AI and its impact on decision-making. Until next time.